This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are setting up the narrative of God's story as a contrast between empire and shalom. And we do have a special guest today, Talmud Chris Marshall. Welcome, Chris. Hey! <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Always good to have the uh, Talmudim join us when they can. Have we talked about Talmudim yet in this podcast? Uh, I mean, we've kind of. referenced, we've had a couple yeah. other Talmudim on the, on the show right. before, but... Uh, I don't think we've really covered it in depth yet. Talmudim means disciple, plural. Talmud, singular. So Chris is Talmud. Talmud Chris. Welcome, Talmud Chris. Thanks. It's good to be on. (laughs) All right. So we've chatted about, um, let's see here. We've chatted about Genesis. We've wrapped up the Genesis material. We've talked about Genesis uh, 1 through 11 as preface. And we've spoken about um, how God said that creation was good. And that he loves it, he values it, he's a, he accepts it, and he pleads with his creation, particularly mankind, to trust uh, in his love and his value and his acceptance of this creation. And if they will, it will set them free. It will set them free to do what they're created to do. Um, and the preface is full of different uh, pieces of humanity, whether it's family lines, lineages, uh, whole civilizations that just don't. Uh, and that led us into the introduction. Right about the time we got hopeless, we got introduced to the family of God. These are people that knew how to trust the story. They, they knew how to be hospitable. They knew how to, to live lives of self-sacrifice rather than lives of fear and insecurity. It didn't mean that they didn't struggle with fear and insecurity. It didn't mean they didn't make a bunch of mistakes. Uh, but they're full of chutzpah. They're full of determination. They're full of commitment. They're a stiff-necked people. And they kept insisting in the truth of God's narrative, the truth of a good story. And, and they trusted it, ultimately. And so we saw that all throughout Avram, Yitzhak, Jacob, and then in the story of Yosef. We watched this incredibly dysfunctional family get brought back together through the heroism of not just Yosef, but also of Judah. And, and a, a Judah who's willing to admit that he's made a horrible mistake and his willingness to stop this cycle of deception is actually what enables this family to find its redemption. Uh, these are people um, that know how to trust the story. And then we could have kind of flowed right into Exodus, but what we said last week was we wanted to kind of take a break and just briefly and pause and take a look before we go from the preface and the introduction into the narrative we wanted to step back and we wanted to um, ask some questions about who we were. And that's what we did last week. We kind of talked about uh, what do we do with this God of wrath and what do we do with uh, this, these feelings of insecurity and, and just kind of pause to deal with that before we jump into the Exodus story and deal with the slaughter of the firstborn. Like, let's make sure we have that in its appropriate place. And then today we want to back up and we want to take a macro look at the story, like this narrative. And we want to understand Egypt, uh, not just in its academic history, uh, not just in its physicality, but we want to understand Egypt as a metaphor. Um, and Brent said it in the intro to this podcast, to understand the narrative as, a, as, as this contrast between empire and shalom. And Egypt will kind of become our first metaphor. It will not be our only metaphor. It won't be the only way we see this, but Egypt will become our first metaphor for this idea of empire and what that looks like. And so today's going to try to help us um, to figure that out. And so what we did uh, is in our discussion groups, we talked, uh, we looked at three different DVD lessons. Um, and we, because of copyright, we want to honor that. And uh, we're not going to be able to play those on our podcast or anything like that. But I wanted to let you know about it. Um, my teacher, one of my teachers, 
but I call him my teacher, um, Ray Vanderlaan, uh, did a series. Some people have seen it. It's uh, put out by Focus on the Family. And uh, the series itself is called That the World May Know. There are about 12 DVDs in this series. And the one that we're working off of for this discussion today is Volume 8. It's Volume 8 of 12. It's a volume called God Heard Their Cry. And we will gonna we'll offer some links in the show notes so you can buy that DVD for yourself. Or you could even buy the whole series if we can find some good links for that. And we'll put that on there. It's an excellent series. Uh, obviously, Ray, being my teacher, changed my life, and it's all good. Uh, the older stuff is older stuff, but the newer stuff is really, really good. Um, and we watched the first three. Um, so the first lesson on this DVD uh, was called How Big Is Our God?, uh, and I just kind of want to walk through the things that uh, he talked about. And we got Chris here and we get some of his feedback and some of his thoughts. We got Brent who's watched it. Um, we've all kind of seen these videos and we can kind of help those who haven't seen these videos walk through that. Yeah, we're definitely going to try to summarize and uh, paint a word picture for you as best as we can. But I mean, I would definitely recommend getting a hold of these videos if you can, because the the imagery that you see um, that's displayed, like it's it's moving and it's it's probably different than what you have in your head of what this story is like. So I definitely recommend seeing it if you can. Right. Yeah, the reason I do this with my students uh, every year is because the visuals, we, we have the Egypt visuals, not necessarily wrong, but they are definitely incomplete. And so I want to add to that. Um, and, and we'll talk some more about that today. But uh, video number one, uh, Ray starts off with this whole exodus narrative by saying we have we have two narratives of of order of creation essentially we have the biblical narrative of order we've taken a look at that and you can go back and listen to that podcast but out of chaos out of what we we called tohu vavohu in the hebrew out of chaos god spoke order and all of this order comes and we he called this order good it's genesis 1 it's where the story starts and 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 then obviously this order starts to descend back into chaos, but central to understanding the biblical narrative is this idea of how God speaks order out of chaos, how God maintains order, and where that order comes from, and what the source of that order is. But then the the big middle chunk of this video is where Ray uh, begins to say, okay, that's the biblical narrative, but what about the Egyptian narrative? And what's interesting is he'll point out, and he won't do a whole lot of this, but he kind of points out somewhat tongue-in-cheek the the similarities and the parallels between the Egyptian creation story and the uh, biblical creation story. Was there anything in there that you can remember that struck you, Chris, as you watched that between the Egyptian and biblical narratives? Just raw, like, <clears throat> raw sitting or like almost kind of hovering over a murky swamp and him like causing accidentally the whole world to come into being sounds a lot like god hovering over the uh, the the chaotic waters that are in the bible but god intentionally makes the world it's kind right. of interesting to me yeah there's definitely these parallels between these creation narratives that I, I think the author of genesis is definitely building on and and telling a very similar story that has totally different implications than the Egyptian narrative. Uh, Brent, did you have anything at that point in the video that you saw or noticed? Well, the, uh, I don't know if this was here, maybe it was a little bit later, but when they were talking about the cartouche and the, the space that their God created 
and the the God is pictured within that space, which I thought was interesting. Like the God is like in a lot of their imagery, the gods are kind of out there and they're not really where you are, but in that cartouche imagery, the God is actually within the space that you are also in. Right. Which I thought was right. Which actually is a wonderful segue because key to the Egyptian narrative is the fact that the God is, is intimately linked uh, to which character, Chris, which character is going to be like the main representative for God, the main link between you and God. Pharaoh. Right. So Pharaoh ends up being, in a lot of ways, a chief priest. He's more than just a king. Uh, Pharaoh is like the the earthly human representation of these Egyptian gods. And that cartouche that Brent spoke of, it becomes this representation of order. In the Egyptian system, you exist in a world of order and all around you. If you remember the biblical creation story, the waters above and the waters below, that's an Egyptian image too. Uh, Above and below this vault Above and below this cartouche sits watery chaos. It's where the gods float in a barge in the Egyptian story. Uh, and, the, and the person who does the work to keep the cartouche in order, that vault in order, is Pharaoh. Pharaoh does the work. Pharaoh is the savior, priestly figure that sits in the in this vault of order and maintains that order because of the work that he does. And so you immediately have this contrast and these competing uh, narratives between um, the biblical narrative of a God who is intimately connected both inside and outside this world, speaking order, and another narrative where Pharaoh has to maintain order or else the world would come crashing down around it. There's a narrative built on fear and there's a narrative built on trust. And these are these two competing narratives. But any other thoughts you guys had in that first video before I kind of give his closing thought, but any other things that came to mind as you watched that video that you have? I particularly liked that the Bible didn't name which Pharaoh it was. Something that I've been thinking about recently uh, ever since I watched the video is how important, but also unimportant the character of pharaoh was not in the sense of like like he's unimportant because he's not mentioned or anything like that he's mentioned quite a bit but he's not important in the sense of you don't need to know which one it is it's just pharaoh it's just that character each one is each pharaoh is sort of represented by the character of pharaoh in the bible right yeah these pharaoh is a representation of something much bigger than the actual individual and it's like one of the great biblical debates, like we all trying to figure out which Pharaoh, like which Pharaoh it was that that was ruling during this story. And that would be well and good. And from an academic perspective, of course, we would wrestle with that question. But yeah, as far as a narrative, the biblical narrative of the Exodus goes, uh, Pharaoh represents something much bigger. Uh, again, Egypt is going to be this picture of empire. And you're right. That's absolutely a, a wonderful point. Yeah, this, the story of Pharaoh in the Exodus is is the story of the entire Egyptian system. It's right. not uh, It's not about the individual. It doesn't matter. Right, absolutely. Because that will be true. The Exodus story is so true no matter which era you look at. And things change and all that kind of stuff from a historian's perspective. But um, that, that narrative still applies when we juxtapose empire and shalom. And so Ray kind of closes video number one. Uh, with this this question, which is there are these two competing narratives in the Exodus story. There are two competing narratives in our world as well, was his kind of indirect implication. 
And uh, have we bought into the wrong story? We too have a story where we um, we are offered a story of fear. And I have to tell you this: like as we talk about these videos today, everybody is going to think that this is some planned, backhanded lesson about Trump and politics. And I have proof, Brent, uh, Chris, you've been with me. I taught this exact same lesson in the last administration, just as hard as I will teach it in this administration. Uh, we talked about these truths in the world of Obama, just as much as we would talk about these truths in the world of Trump. But anybody that's sensitive right now, because of the things that we've been going through and the things we've been experiencing, is going to look at this going, oh, he's, he's trying to make all these backhanded comments about my political views. No, that... Yes, but very much indirectly. I don't even, it doesn't matter to me which political views we hold. We still have a problem of putting our trust in Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh to us can look like a lot of different things. It can look like a lot of different things. Um, but Ray says we can look at our lives and, and our world and our culture, and we should be able to tell which narrative we've bought into. If we've bought into the biblical narrative, there should be shalom brought to chaos. Uh, there should be the outsider being brought in. There should be everything being put back in its proper place. That would be shalom. But if we've brought into the wrong narrative, Ray pointed out at the end of the video, then that means that there are some people that are expendable, the poor, the refugee, uh, the alien, the orphan, the widow, um, the elderly, these are people that are pushed to the edges because it's about keeping the vault inside the cartouche in order. And who we believe that order comes from makes a huge, huge difference. And so he just kind of introduces us to these two narratives. Uh, they're, they're narratives that I'm going to call empire and shalom. He called them Egypt and, and the Bible. We can do a lot of different things with that, but we're going to use these two uh, words, empire and shalom, a lot as we we talk about this. In fact, if we were to go through our review, the one thing we'll talk about, the narrative of God, after we get done with Genesis and we talk about the preface, 1 through 11, uh, it's about trusting a good story. And, and then we have the introduction and the family of God. When we get to the next thing, it's going to be the book of Exodus. This is where the narrative of God begins. And we're going to call the narrative of God the tale of two kingdoms. So the phrase that's going to kind of run through my entire teaching from Exodus all the way through uh, Revelation and into church history and all the way to today, as we find ourselves in a tale of two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of shalom and there's a kingdom of empire. And every day you and I get to choose which narrative we buy into. Um, and, and this is one place where we just start to be able to make that out. And uh, any other thoughts before we move on to video two? Yeah, the, the end of that video, um, Ray said something to the effect of, if you see a culture where life is cheap and sacrifice of others is acceptable to sustain your own obsession with pleasure and entertainment and wealth, you have the wrong story. Hmm. That was... I'm just making sure when he recorded this video, it was a while ago. <laughs> it was years ago. Uh because it just it feels so fitting for some of the things that we're wrestling with in our culture right now. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. Uh, moving on to video number two. So the next video we watched uh, was titled, uh, Israel in Bondage, God Heard Their Cry. 
Uh, and this video, I love where this video starts out. And he actually has another video where he deals with this as well um, that we won't use in, in our class. But if you get his videos, you'll be able to see it. Uh, and that is the land of Goshen. Video number two opens up in the land of Goshen. It is this incredible, you're standing in luscious, green, waist-deep, barley. Uh, I mean, it's, it is not what I've ever pictured when I thought of Egypt. In one video, in fact, he starts the video kind of standing in that lush green, and he kind of gives the introduction to the video, and then all of a sudden he takes two steps, and as the camera pans with him, you go from this amazing green background of nothing but foliage and harvest and crops into absolutely barren desert. Uh, and that was one of the most key important pictures for me because what he's showing in the video is what we know as the land of Goshen. This is where the Israelites settled. And, and I always pictured Egypt and I thought pharaohs and pyramids and desert and all that kind of stuff. But instead, what I ended up finding was the place where the Israelites were asked to settle was this, the best farmland on planet Earth. National Geographic did a study not too long ago, uh, maybe a few years ago. Uh, where they did these cutaways of the the top 10 farmland areas on the globe. Uh, and number two and number three were actually found right here in the States. And they were the Great Plains and the volcanic minerals of the Northwest. And they were like six feet of topsoil. The land of Goshen and the, the, the Nile Delta has 100 feet of rich topsoil. They couldn't even do the cutaway for the National Geographic article. They couldn't even show the depth of it. It was too deep. To this day, the best topsoil on the face of planet Earth. And this is where the Israelites settled. And the reason what worked for them is the Israelites were what kind of a people, Chris? They were nomadic. Right. They, they didn't have to settle, so they, they could move. They were used to moving. And so they would live most of the year farming for Pharaoh in the land of Goshen. But the Egyptians weren't nomadic. They loved to build their cities and build their empire. And so they didn't want to live in Goshen because every year it flooded. And whoever lived there would have to pick up and move. Well, this worked out really fine for the Israelites. They would just pick up and move and continue to work for Pharaoh elsewhere. But that picture, like the Israelites didn't go down to Egypt and get handed a miserable life making bricks. They originally went down to Egypt and the text tells us they were handed the richest farmland on the planet and they had it really, really good. Yeah. That was the reference from Genesis 47 they mentioned in the video. Absolutely. Did you have any thoughts about that part of the video? Either of you guys? I was just thinking um, with the, like, let's just say there's a priest of the God of the Nile. And I was just thinking of an image where he's standing like one foot on or one foot in the barley and one foot on the desert. And he's saying like, which God brings you order. Right. I was just thinking that would be a tough narrative at that point to Ooh. like counter. I love that thought. And later in the video, it actually pans from a distance and you get to see the line. I mean, it's a straight line. It's a straight line where on the left of the line, it is waist-deep barley. On the right of the line, there's not a green leaf at all, period. Not exaggerating. It's absolutely barren desert. It's a pretty quick shot, so don't miss it. Yeah, and it's really, really good. But you're right, Chris. You could actually have a living metaphor where you stand with one foot in one and one foot in the other, and you say, which narrative do you think works? And boy, for us American People, believers, Jesus, that's a big question for some of us. 
because I'm not sure if we put one foot in waist-deep barley and one foot in barren desert, I'm not sure we'd look at the desert and say that's where God is. I think we would say, well, obviously God's over here in the lush, wonderful barley fields. But uh, anyway. All right. So after that, Ray then asked the question in video number two. So what happens when the Israelites move on? What happens when they have to pick, they have to pick up and move because it floods? Then what do they do? And so Ray then, uh, then took us just outside the Valley of the Kings in the, uh, in the video, and he talked to us about how these, uh, these nomadic uh, slaves, and he didn't actually talk about the archaeological, um, I wouldn't say evidence, but things that we found to kind of seem, uh, we found lots of Egyptian um, uh, records that talk about the Ibiru, the Ibiru people. Lots of people think, boy, that sounds an awful lot like Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew people, Ibiru. Um, and, and maybe that's the case, maybe it's not, but the Ibirus would be one group of people that would fit into this category, these folks that would come work for Pharaoh during that season, and they would work in places like tombs, or they would do various jobs for Pharaoh, building infrastructure, and, and we found lots of records about what this life was like. And Pharaoh said, listen, if you come work to me, work for me for this season, I'll give you this, uh, this wonderful middle-class wage, I'll give you a weekend uh, you can work for me. They had a 10-day work week. So you work for me 10 days, and then I'll give you a two- or a three-day weekend. Very, very similar to our culture, eight-hour work days. Uh, they were provided with living. They had these three-room apartments that we found all over these places where Pharaoh would provide the housing for the residential housing for his workers. Um, they were given uh, water, provided water sources. Uh, they were given food. Um, they were given everything they needed and a very, very comfortable middle class life. And one of the things that uh, Ray points out is when you read the biblical story, whether you're reading Deuteronomy or whether you're reading Joshua or whether you're reading Ezekiel, um, there were these passages uh, that, what did those passages tell us, Chris? Can you remember? Mm, I'm unsure. Uh, let's see here. Ezekiel said, what did they do while they were in Egypt? What did Joshua say? Put away the oh, uh, oh put away the the false what was it false idols? Yeah, false gods put away or... the gods. Put away the gods. Yeah, yeah, put away the gods that you worshipped in in Egypt. And Ezekiel says uh, that they worship the gods in Egypt, and God asked them to stop, and they they refuse to to disengage from there. And so there are all these biblical passages that tell us that somewhere along the way, the people of Israel, while they're in Egypt, gave in to the Egyptian narrative. Not every single one of them. Not that there weren't exceptions to that. But the picture that the Bible paints for us and talks to us about in the prophets and in the history and elsewhere is a story where the Israelites gave into the Egyptian narrative, just like Chris just talked about. They, they put one foot in barley, one foot in the desert, and said, we're in. And we'll talk actually in class, and I don't want to do this a bunch here. We'll talk in our discussion groups, should I say. Uh, I have some pictures. Um, of these uh, ruins of these furnaces that we found uh, where they made one of the reasons that Egypt, that Egypt was one of the most powerful forces on the planet was Egypt had the leading technology in what, Chris? It was metalworking, right? That's right. They had learned how to make the strongest iron at that point in history because they had learned how to make the fire hotter. They had made these gigantic furnaces. They had added air to the fire using the, uh, the use of billows, and they had created a hotter fire, which the hotter you can burn the fire, the stronger you can make your metal. And 
in that ancient world, in fact, you might think of how we classify the ancient world. We classify in terms of Iron Age, Iron Age II, Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age, Early Bronze Age. History is always classified by metal because metal ruled the world. It was kind of like the oil of our day. Metal was, was their day, and Egypt had the leading metal technology. Well, what do you use metal for, Brent? Weapons. And? Tools. Tools and weapons. Those are your two big uses. Well, he, uh, let's put the weapons aside. Who's using the tools? The Israelites. Yeah. Who's doing all the farming for Pharaoh? But the Israelites. The Israelites are doing all this farming. The, the, the Israelites are doing all this work for Pharaoh. The Israelites are having this wonderful life on the back of people. I mean, we visit these uh, furnaces sometimes when I take groups over to Israel. And uh, these furnaces burned at somewhere between, if I remember right, if I remember correctly what I was told, 600 to 800 degrees. And uh, these slaves would just drop like flies. But just like you pointed out at the end of video one, when life is cheap and people are expendable. Um, and we'll talk some more about this in our discussion groups. But when you stand one foot in barley and you buy into that narrative, that narrative comes uh, at a price. And... Uh, and that's what Ray points out in this video. He says they, they had bought into their gods, and they had bought into a narrative. And uh, anything else at that point before we go on that struck you about that part of the video? Either of you guys? All right, then. Moving on. But uh, they, they had this... Uh, uh, Ray had this... I love this question. It, it's not... At this point, it's not going to be... Uh, how do I get my people out of Egypt? Uh, God has this new question he has to wrestle with. How do I get Egypt out of my people? Uh, my people have bought into Egypt. They're down in Egypt. Uh, they've bought into the narrative. And now how do I get that narrative out of them? And it seems like one of the ways that God does that is he, he gives you absolutely what you want because empire only leads one direction. And God says, if you really want empire, I will give you empire until that empire turns around and crushes you. Because that's how the cycle always works. And that's what ends up happening. Eventually, the people that lived off the back of empire and what the empire had to offer became the very people that sat at the bottom of empire. And so we're told about a Pharaoh that arises at noon, not Joseph. And now all of a sudden the Israelites find themselves in brutal oppression. And Ray points out in this video, every time you see Pharaoh, uh, what is he always holding? And like hieroglyphic after hieroglyphic, temple after temple, uh, what is Pharaoh holding? He's holding a shepherd's crook. Okay. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's a stick that symbolizes his power and his authority. And what is he often doing with this stick in many of the temples built to honor Pharaoh? Isn't he holding it in like crossways with something else if I recall correctly. That's an yeah. often way that he's he's pictured postured. He he is postured with that stick. Was any anything else yet stood out to you in this video, Brent, that you saw about how Pharaoh was holding or using the stick? He's usually holding it over people. Exactly. Like there's this uh one there's this one temple. Ah oh, man, I'm gonna forget which I think it's a temple at Karnak. Ah, can't remember. And there are um he he's got all of these slaves by the hair all of these people groups and the nations by the hair. And he sits with the stick held in his hand, 
this threatening stick of power, the threatening stick of empire. And this is the picture over and over and over. Every time you turn the corner, there's Pharaoh and his stick. Every time you turn the corner, there's Pharaoh with his intimidation and his coercion and his fear, telling people that you have to follow his way or else this is the punishment. And the Israelites finally find themselves on the other end of this stick. And so God has to go looking for what? What does God need, Mr. Marshall? What does God need in order to help his people out? God needs a leader. God needs a partner. God needs a leader. God needs somebody who's going to help him. And so he goes looking for somebody and he finds somebody who has his heart. Uh, He may not have his methods quite yet. Um, Because what what do we see, Brent? What do we see Moshe doing when we find him first? Well, he's... He's an Egyptian, basically. Right. He's, he's raised in Pharaoh's household. Exactly. He's His solution is sometimes murder. Exactly. He sees, he's got the heart of God because he sees injustice. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave and he has the heart of God. So he lashes out. So he might need to work on his methods with the whole lashing out and killing people thing, but he's got the heart of God. And, and Ray ends the video by saying, we've got to be people that hear the cry. Because God hears the cry, and he looks for partners who hear the cry. And we have to be people that hear the cry. We may need to be shaped. We may need to be molded, Ray says. We may have to go out for 40 years in the desert for God to teach us some new methods. But he's looking for people that hear the cry. And that's kind of where video two takes us. Any other thoughts on video two before I move on? One, sorry. No, go Something for it. that just came up. One thing that I found interesting was... The Israelites never cried out specifically to Adonai. They just cried out and God still heard them. I just find it comforting that you can cry out and God will hear you. Right. This is the same God we encountered in Genesis over and over and over again. A God who would remember the covenant, the rainbow, Noah. The God who would walk the, the blood path. This is not a God that's waiting for you to get the formula right or the incantation correct or the magical spell worked out. This is a God who loves his creation and wants to put it back together. And when the cry goes up, he hears it. And when you're the, on the other, when you're on the crying end, this is good news. When you're on the end where you're causing the cry, this is a warning. And these are the things that we bump into. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about was how in the beginning of the story, God speaks to Moses and says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And then when they get out of Egypt in Exodus 19, he says, I will make you a kingdom of priests. And the priests, one of the priests role is to represent God to the people. So you move from the system where Pharaoh is the, the one authority about what God is like. And, and the sanctuary in the temple is this mysterious place where very few people can go. And God says, no, I want my entire people to represent me. Right. I love that point. And I, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. The missional aspect of this. God's looking for a partner. We hope that that partner is us. And this mission is to go be the, one of my favorite lines in that. He's not just looking for Moses to go give the message. He's looking for Moses to go be the message. Uh, I, I love that line. I've heard that from him many times. And, uh, and I just love that line. But you're right. He's asking a people. Uh, he starts with a leader. 
He starts with somebody that can teach the people what it means to do this correctly. But by the time they get out of here and by the time they get out into the desert and by the time they followed God through the desert, God wants all of them to have become a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of Moseses, a kingdom of people that can show the world what God is like, not just bring the message. Our call is not just to bring the message to the world, but to be the message to the world. So, yeah, that's a wonderful point. All right, so then we had one last video, uh, video number three. And really, uh, we won't spend a lot of time here today um, because we're going to spend a lot of time in the plagues and the Exodus story and Foreman's material uh, coming up here in the next couple podcasts. Um, For anybody that wants to start studying ahead, that's where we're going to be. So get all refreshed on your Exodus story, Uh, Exodus 1 through, you know, 13, 14 ish. Uh, and that's where we'll be for a little while. But, um, yeah, Ray takes his own kind of spin on this story of the plagues and, and Ray says, what we have here, as you look at the plagues, as you look at the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, is you have this confrontation and this competition, uh, of, of the gods. Uh, you have the competition of the Egypt gods represented in who Pharaoh is, and you have the competition of the God of, of Israel, the God of the Bible, the creator God. And he really points this out. One of Ray's teaching points is to talk about the sticks. And one of my favorite things he points out in this video uh, is with uh, when Moses and Aaron go in and they throw, uh, he throws the stick on the ground and it becomes a snake. And then the magicians come in and their staffs become snakes. And we're not told there's just two. I, I picked that up somewhere. Uh, and all the children's videos that I watched, we're just told that there's magicians, plural. So we don't know how many sticks there are, but there's plural sticks and all their sticks become snakes. And then uh, we're told that Moses says, what, Chris, can you remember? Moses, like, uh, give me a little bit more than that. Sorry. I don't know. What is What happens at that point after all the snakes are on the ground? Oh, oh. Moses's staff swallows or eats up the other staffs. Oh, you mean not snakes? Yes, I mean not snakes. Oh, you mean that? You meant that on purpose. I meant that on purpose. That's right. Yeah, uh, Ray loves to point out in the text. It doesn't say Moses's snake ate the other snakes. It says Moses's stick. Now I don't know how that worked literally. If we're taking a literal rending of the story, I don't know if the literally a stick ate a bunch of other sticks, or if it was snakes that ate. Or one snake to eat the other snakes, but the point the narrative seems to be, the narrator, the author seems to be trying to get across is make no mistake about it. This is not about snakes. This is about sticks. And there's a stick that Chris talked about earlier, a stick that symbolizes the power and the authority of empire. It's that shepherd's crook that represents Pharaoh's ultimate absolute leadership. And then there's the shepherd's, the true shepherd's staff, uh, of God, uh, a real shepherd's staff, a nasty old stick gotten from the desert that God says that that's going to represent who I am and my power. And we have here a juxtaposition of two sticks. You guys have any thoughts on video three before I have some closing thoughts on, on the video, anything that stood out to you guys? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about the plagues, but as you said, we're going to get into that more later. So yeah. Yeah, he does go into the end of video three here, uh, which, by the way, I didn't give you the title. The end of video three is called Finger of God, colon, the plagues. Finger of God, the plagues. Um, And uh, he does get in at the end of that video uh, into going through every plague almost one by one um, because... Uh, what he shows is that these aren't just random plagues. It's not just like God throwing random stuff on Egypt. 
uh, but God is actually starting to attack this Egyptian hierarchy of deities. And if you could imagine 10 gods set up in like a hierarchy, like a pyramid, almost like a set of bowling pins, um, God starts at the bottom and he starts knocking out Egyptian gods one by one. And we'll come back to this a little bit more in our next two podcasts. Um, but uh, you can definitely see this narrative. And so one of the things that Ray says is Ray says, um, he points out that in the story of the Exodus, uh, God says that he's doing this so that the Hebrews will know. And he uses the word, what's the word for know here, Chris? I know you know this. Yada. Yada. It's a, uh, the Hebrew word yada means to what? Tell me more about the word yada. To know extremely like no extremely well and intimately to know like basically like when god wants to know your heart he wants to yada your heart like to know its deepest most like known truths right right it's like an experiential knowing it's not just a cerebral knowing it's not just knowledge and intellect but it's a it's a it's an experiential knowing and so god says he's doing this uh he's going through these plagues that the hebrews will know he will experience that he is god but then, uh, obviously, our next thought is, oh, so it's obviously the Egyptians that God is mad at. It's obviously the Egyptians that God is, I'm doing this that the Hebrews will know and the Egyptians will be punished. But in fact, God will say a little bit later in the story, no, I'm doing this that the Egyptians will yada that I am the Lord, that the Egyptians will experience that I am God. And you're like, okay, oh, that, yeah, that makes sense. I guess they're just kind of innocent bystanders. It's Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh that God's mad at. It's Pharaoh that he's coming after. And ultimately, God says, no, I'm also going to do this so that Paro will know that I am. Paro will yada, will experience that I'm the Lord. And this, this leaves only one option then, and that is that God is going to war against the Egyptian gods. And I think another way we could say this is God is going to war against the narrative of empire. And he wants everybody who's listening to come along for the ride. And so, by the end of the story, God asks his people to make a choice. Because at the end of the story, God's been doing all these plagues. And what have the Israelites been doing, Mr. Brent? They've been standing by and watching God work. Yeah, been watching God. And now plague 10 comes and God says, now it's time for you to give me a little buy-in. Now it's time to put your trust in the story. Because here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a goat which was the symbol of what, Chris? Goat. Oh, that was the symbol of, it wasn't, uh, it was, was that raw? It was. It was raw. Yeah. The chief god of the Egyptian system, symbolized by a ram or a lamb or a goat. The animal, every Egyptian god had an animal that symbolized it. And Ra's animal was the ram or the goat. And God says, I want you to take a goat or a, a lamb and I want you to slaughter it and wipe its blood all over your doorposts. That was Amun-Ra, right? Amun-Ra, yeah. Because I think Ra was the sun god. Sure. Yeah, yes, that is actually correct when you parse the, yeah. Um, So uh, we're wiping this blood on your doorpost. That's probably going to be a real great idea, telling all the Egyptians how you feel about their chief god. Yeah, this, this is God saying, I want you to trust the story. I want you, uh, it's time for you to step out. It's time for you to tell me where you stand. And, and so they get uh, an opportunity to choose which narrative. And maybe years and years and years ago, they would have made a different choice as they sat with one foot in waist-high barley and one foot in the desert. I like that metaphor. I'm going to keep using that over and over again. Thanks, Chris. No problem. Uh, but maybe this, uh, maybe they would have made a different decision back then. But now, 
now they are now they're done with empire. They've had enough. They've had enough of their babies being thrown in the Nile. Uh, they've had enough of their uh, elderly being uh, beaten. Uh, they've had enough of their women being abused, and uh, and they're ready at this point to let God take Egypt out of them, as well as them out of Egypt. And and so they uh, hopefully many of them. We're not told, but uh, we get the impression that many, many, many of them said, uh, we're choosing God's story. We're choosing God's narrative. Uh, we can probably assume that there are some that didn't. Um, but anyway, these videos are really going to help us. They're going to help us to set up this uh, uh, tale of two kingdoms. Um, and they did a good job of showing us empire and showing it in a way that was hopefully just soft enough to not totally offend us but hopefully very strong enough to make it really obvious how badly we deal with that in this world. Uh, we are given two narratives to trust, and we don't find ourselves on the back end of the Exodus story, uh, suffering under the hand of a pharaoh at this point in our history. But we might find ourselves at the front part of the story, and maybe there's some things that we might want to learn um, from this biblical narrative. Uh, and I think we struggle with this idea that we can have both. I think we think, oh, yeah, I can have, I'll have God's empire. How about that? I'll have, I'll have a godly empire. I'll have an empire built on, and it doesn't work. It's not how it, it's not how it works. Empire and shalom are built on fundamentally different principles. And Jesus will tell us we can't serve both. We can't have both, serve both God and mammon, uh, mammon being in more a much later God in the story, but uh, you can't you can't have both. Uh, we get to choose which story we want to be a part of because the story of empire will always come at a cost, and we're going to talk some more about that in our discussion groups about the cost of empire. Uh, and I'm even thinking that one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up the last two inauguration speeches. I'm going to make sure I do the the last two so that I get everybody covered. I'm an equal opportunity provoker. I'm an equal opportunity offender, but I think we're going to pull up the last two and we're going to go through them and we're going to say empire, 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 empire. And we're going to ask, is that Jesus or is that Pharaoh? And uh, we'll show both parties. Uh, we'll show where empire rears its head. Um, but maybe for those that won't be in our discussion groups, maybe it would be a fun little task. Uh, pull up on YouTube the last two inauguration speeches. Uh, pick, take your pick of Mr. Obama's and then take the last one we heard from Mr. Trump and and ask yourself uh, whether or not we're looking at a cartouche uh, with a man in the middle saying, don't you worry, we'll keep the vault in order. And ask yourself what God wants from his people. Ask yourself what cost our luxury and what cost our comfort and what cost our leisure and even most importantly, what cost our security comes out. So just some things to think about. All right. So if you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. You can find Chris Marshall at Chris Tofu Dude. Chris Tofu dude that's, that's a running joke that's c-h-r-i-s-t-o-f-u-d-u-d-e it's a running joke one of the other uh talmudim loves to call me chris tofu and now do you you're like to, chris tofu dude do you like to eat tofu i don't think i've ever actually eaten tofu Ugh. Ugh. 
Yeah, stay away from that. Makes a better Twitter handle than it does a food group. I guess so. All right. I know. I'll get some emails about that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you can find more details about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. Uh, do check out the show notes for this episode. Get a hold of those videos if you weren't in our discussion groups to see them. Uh, definitely recommend that. Thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.